Would you pray with me? Just uh, want to just ask God to uh, really be center in this in these moments. God, we pause this morning and want to recognize that you are the Almighty Creator. We are your creation, and uh, for some reason you have called us to be the heirs of your kingdom, and we rejoice in that, that we are your children, that we can laugh and love love you with uh, and play with, uh, but God, there is a serious mission in the world that you have called us to, and it is for that, God, that we want to call, uh, just focus our attention to hear your voice that we might know you better this morning. Uh, so Jesus, uh, have your way with us. Speak to us. Encourage us. Challenge us. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, I don't obviously have the privilege of knowing where each of you may be in your own journey with God this morning. Uh, I feel like I've been uh, journeying with Jesus for a really long time now, ever since I was a little boy. Uh, but there's a question that has been challenging my faith uh, recently. And that question is, are Jesus and I interested in the same things? Or in other words, if people were to look at my life, my life's passions and my interests, would they see the passions and interests of God? Now, uh, of course... We, we, can, we don't have to wonder what the passions or what the interests of God are, right? Because they're all through Scripture. I mean, it's not as if he's, you know, he's hidden them from us. He's put it out there plainly for us to see. And we could go through any number of Scriptures to find what it, God is most passionate about this morning. Uh, you, I mean, think of the verses that come to my mind, hundreds of them, where he just lays it out there. But there's one verse in particular that I wanted to call your attention to this morning that I think would serve our purposes very well. And that comes from the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, you, you know the verse very well. It's where they set the scene. Jesus is in the temple, and he's been handed the scrolls, right? And he's just come out of the desert and been baptized and now all the eyes are upon him and he opens to the book of Isaiah or the scroll of Isaiah and he reads these words that are a proclamation of his ministry and mission in the world in fact the words are up here on the screen Let, let's let's read them together will shall we the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. Sounds a little bit like that song, doesn't it? But right there, Jesus calls into the present, his present moment this prophecy of Isaiah that becomes his mission. And then he goes out and does it. And so we see in this one sentence that Jesus has at least four purposes or objectives. Those being to preach the gospel, redemption, to, to proclaim release to the captives, releasing people from what, what is what, their prisons, recovery of sight to the blind, restoration, and to set free those who are oppressed, to rescue now, in one sentence, Jesus declares his mission so succinctly. Uh, you just got to love how packed the, the words of Jesus are with meaning. 
It gives us what God is passionate about for the whole world. Now, me, on the other hand, what am I most passionate about? Well, to tell you the truth, after following God for over 40 years now, uh, every single day, I am totally passionate about me. Yeah, I love me. In fact, I don't have to, to, to remind myself to, to love myself when I wake up in the morning. I tend to fascinate myself. Now, now uh, while this is true that God loves Andy, that, that uh, his, his, he is passionate about me, my pastor has noticed this uh, sort of uh, myopic view of, of the world and, and said, hey, Andy, I think you need to expand this, this, this perspective of, of God's heart for the world. And so, you know, I, I agree with that and I see that in Scripture. And so on a good day, uh, I find myself, uh, my heart beginning to grow and to, to encompass more of God's heart. And I actually will, on a good day that is, find myself extending love and mercy and compassion to all the people in the world who are in my immediate family. Where, hey, that's actually a pretty good day in my home, where I will actually extend more love and compassion to my wife and two kids than I do to myself. I know it's a good day because they put a star on that day on our wall calendar and they circled it and they're praying that it'll come around again next year. But uh, seriously, when you, you read scriptures like John 3.16 of God's love for the world, and, and sometimes it just does move me, right, to, to really want to broaden that, that, even beyond my own family, to include all of those people in the world who uh, I like, or who like me, or who are like me. And sadly, what I find is all too often, this then dis- de- defines my, my world of passion and, and focus, this world of what I call me and mine. But I don't think God would have us be prisoners of just this small little world. And I've learned that unless I intentionally focus my, my desires and passions on what God is passionate about each day, I have a tendency to just slip into that little world of me and mine. And I usually miss out on the blessings that God has for me during that day. Blessings of knowing Him, of actually being part of something that is larger than just me that God is doing in the whole world. And so this morning I thought that this verse here in Luke would be a great verse to help be a reminder for us of what really matters to God in the world. Now, when you hear the words of Jesus that the whole world experience redemption, uh, release from captivity, to be restored, to be, to be rescued from oppression, I mean, this all sounds good and well, right? But have you ever wondered, well, God, uh, if that's your mission, what's your plan for making it happen, right? Uh, I've wondered that. Well, Jesus is very clear what his plan is. In fact, he tells his disciples it over and over and over again, but they're kind of slow to catch on to this. He says, in, he says to them in the verses on the screen here, it says, guys, you are the light of the world. He says, therefore, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't look at his disciples and say, eh, you might be the light of the world. 
Or well, you, you could be the light of the world. He doesn't even wring his hands and go, guys, I sure hope you turn out to be the light of the world. <laughs> There's a lot riding on this. No, he just says, you're it. And so it took the disciples some time to get the idea, but if you read through the book of Acts, it's, it's pretty easy to see how powerful this plan of Jesus really is. And so for 2,000 years, the church has been carrying out this mission that Jesus began, that he proclaimed right here from Isaiah. Now, what does that look like for us here today, 2012? Well, simply this. When people are suffering because they don't know God, we, the church, get to go to those people and share the good news of Jesus, that Jesus was born, that he lived. He is a, he's our Savior. He's a risen Lord. We get to do that. It's a privilege. When people are suffering because they, uh, they may need restoration from some kind of medical issue or disease, we send doctors to them. We build clinics. Or if they're suffering because they, they need food, we, we provide what we have. Or if they don't have shelter, we build homes. And when we do these acts of, of, of sharing the gospel and, and mercy and compassion, what, what the people actually experience is the goodness of God. And we then also, we get to experience being partners with God in this amazing and epic uh, story that is unfolding before us all around the world. But you know, there's another category of people that Jesus has in mind here that he mentions in the statement who are suffering. And he says they're not suffering because they don't have access to the gospel. Or they're not suffering because they're, they're sick or because they don't have food or, or education. They're not suffering for any of those reasons. He says these people are suffering because they are captives and they are being oppressed by the violent and intentional abuse of another person. These are the victims of injustice. And Jesus says it is his mission that they be released and rescued. Now, as soon as I say that word injustice, right, I hear it coming off of my own lips, uh, I have to pause just for a moment because you hear that word a lot these days, don't you? Injustice. It's all over the media and, and, and becomes somewhat of a vogue uh, issue even within the church. And frankly, even as Americans, I think we tend to view ourselves as victims of injustice just about all day, every day. I mean, even in my own home, I have two kids, 8 and 12. They will tell you they are victims of injustice. Oh, yeah. Oh, in big way. And usually involves some huge discrepancy of like ice cream or, or soda or something where like my son will hold up his bowl and cry out, Dad, this isn't fair. She got, you know, it's coming more than me, right? This is totally unjust. You even work for International Justice Mission. Yeah, he started using that line on me. Well, it's so childish, right? You know, this petty perspective of, of, of that. I, I'm glad, aren't, you know, aren't you glad as adults we, we mature and grow out of those childish perspectives? Yeah, think about that for a moment. Not so much. Uh, but when, we, when I talk about the word injustice, uh, I'm not speaking about what, I, what we usually have in our mind as an unequal distribution of stuff, Right? Or, or even what we might experience as life's little inconveniences? No, no, no. When, when I say the word injustice, the Bible has something very specific in mind. To, the, to, to God, injustice is when one person abuses his or her power 
to steal the things that God intends for another person, usually with less power. Things like their life, their liberty, uh, their dignity, or the fruits of their love or their labor. This is injustice, and it always involves two things, violence and coercion. Violence and coercion. And the Bible actually has a word for injustice. It's called sin. It's the sin of injustice. This is the sin that King David committed when he abused his power as king to steal another man's wife. And then he continued to abuse his power as king and he stole that man's life. And it wasn't until the prophet Nathan had to come and confront King David on his sin of injustice. When King Solomon looked out among his, uh, uh, his kingdom, he said these words. He saw, said, Behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. But on the side of the oppressor was power. In 2009, I left my position as a missions pastor at a church and I joined International Justice Mission. Together, we are a collection of Christian attorneys, professional uh, investigators, trauma social care workers, advocates. And what we do is we take on cases of violence and abuse around the world. We do, their, we do this as casework in, in about 18 locations in developing countries. And here's what we do. We have four objectives. The first objective is to investigate the crimes and rescue the victims who are being oppressed. Second objective is long-term aftercare. What good does it do to rescue someone and then put them back out on the streets only to be re-victimized? No, we want to see them restored. We want to put them into an environment where they can experience the restoring and healing love of Jesus. Thirdly, because we're uh, a group of Christian attorneys, we like to see that justice is done. To send a message to both the victim and to society that a crime was committed and it was wrong. And so together with the local authorities, we uh, hold perpetrators accountable. And by doing this casework and by doing all these three things, the fourth goal is what, is what we call structural transformation, where the justice system begins to function, not just to protect the elite or the powerful, but to protect everyone the way it was intended to. So now, even after just a few short years with International Justice Mission, I have a pretty clear picture of what injustice looks like in our world today. It's not just about inequal distribution of ice cream. No, consider these statistics. 27 million men, women, and children right now live as modern-day slaves. I can't even get my mind around 27 million. Or consider human trafficking. The sale of a human being from one human to another human has become the second largest but the fastest growing global criminal activity to the tune of $32 billion a year. The World Bank did a survey and concluded that over 4.5 billion people in the world live outside the protection of the rule of law. In other words, they are totally exposed and vulnerable to any would-be bully. Or UNICEF tells us that this year alone, two million children will be forced into the prostitution. Two million children. Now, statistics like these, I mean, I could go on with statistics like these and paint a pretty dark picture of the abuse and oppression that's going on in our world. But I don't think they really help us grab God's heart 
for the issue. I mean, 27 million could, could be like a number that is like some nebula out in space, right? It's just this distant, foggy reality. Until, that is, you meet one of them. I want you to, inter- I want you to meet Kumar. Kumar, when he was five years old, living in a poor area of India, uh, experienced a tragedy. Both of his parents died, and so Kumar went to live with his uncle. And so after two years of living with his uncle, uh, his uncle needed some cash, and he took out a loan from a local brick kiln operator. And he didn't have the money to pay him back, so he conscripted Kumar at the age of seven to work off this loan of about $20. Now, Kumar, instead of going to school like all of his friends were were going and, and excited about, Kumar was initiated into a cruel life of slavery called a bonded labor system. It's slavery. And seven days a week, sometimes 12, 14 hours a day, Kumar would carry heavy loads of bricks with his hands. And by the end of the day, his body was just racked in pain. Seven days a week. And this went on and on and on. The The cruel trick of it all is the longer Kumar worked to try to pay off this debt, the more in debt he became. In fact, there were other folks working as bonded laborers in this brick kiln who had been there for generations. Because the brick, it's a cruel system where they charge the people who are working there for the, for food or for for, uh, living quarters more than what their wages make. And so they become more and more indebted. And so Kumar at the age of seven has no hope of ever getting out of this brick kiln factory. And the cruel truth is that Kumar represents, in his country alone, 10 to 15 million children who exist just like him, working in rock quarries, rice mills, brick factories, and other textile mills. Or meet Alina. Alina was one of 11 children in the Philippines, grew up in a poor area, on a poor island in in the Philippines, and so there was never enough to go around it. Alina's table when the dinner was served. And so when her aunt came from another, uh, from Manila and said, Alina, why don't you come back with me and help me at my house and you can help take care of my two kids? Alina saw this as her way out. And so she went back with her aunt. And when the first weekend came around, uh, her uncle, who was a high-ranking Philippine national police officer assigned to a uh, a far-off municipality, had came home found Elena and sexually assaulted her. And then after that, threatened her uh, with death if she were to tell anyone. And so here, Elena, uh, she was 12 years old at the time, 12 years old with her aunt from a poor, she's alone, she can't tell, I mean, the person who was charged to protect her, the policeman, her uncle, was the very one who was abusing her. She had no one to turn to. And so every week, the uncle would go away, and every weekend, the uncle would come back, and every weekend, the same nightmare happened again and again and again. And so Alina had no voice. Consider Joy T. Joy T lived also in South Asia, in India, as a 14-year-old girl. And when I met Joy T., the first thing I noticed would have been the first thing you probably noticed was just how beautiful she was. She had these big, dark brown eyes, beautiful hair and skin. But Joy T also grew up in a poor area in India. 
and struggled to make things uh, work within her family. And so when four women came to her village and promised through these fancy brochures, these great paying jobs in the city where they could come with them and then send money back to the family, Joy T went with those four women on the train back to the city. But what Joy T didn't know was when she drank some tea that they gave her, uh, the tea was drugged and so she fell unconscious. And Joy T, when she woke up, woke up in a brothel. And the bar owner, the owner of that brothel had paid the trafficker, those women, about $250. And the the brothel owner told Joy T that she would now have to work off that debt of $250 by servicing customers. And Joy T first said, look, I'm 14 years old. You can't do this to me. This isn't right. And so what they did is they just stuffed her under in, in the basement of the brothel and they beat her electrical cords and metal rods and plastic tubing. And they, 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 they cut off her food until she was so weak if her, her will to resist was finally broken and she served her first customer. It was a Western tourist. And it's almost inconceivable but to imagine Joy T from that moment on seven days a week serviced between 20 and 30 customers a day. And when you think about girls like Joy T or Alina or boys like Kumar, seeing all of their suffering, I don't know what it does to you, but it literally rips my heart out of my chest makes me angry, and I, f- I, I experience all these, this range of emotions. It makes me wonder sometimes, well, God, how do you feel about all this? What's going on up there, God? Well, Scripture is clear of what's going on in God's throne. In fact, all over Scripture it tells us, but uh, the verse I've chosen is Proverbs 14.31, where God says, He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker. The reason I love this verse is because I remember being taunted in elementary school. Anyone taunted when you were in elementary school? You remember that? Yeah. I was like this runt little kid, and I was taunted by everybody. I mean, I remember having them poke their finger in my chest, and, and I was afraid. And, and I just, it was just insulting. Do you realize that God is saying that when those oppress the poor, it's like taunting him? God takes it personally. Because while the world may consider it a misdemeanor, God considers it a human catastrophe. It's an offense to him and to his very existence. So this is the good news of Scripture in regards to injustice. That in the world of brutal abuse, there is a God who cares and that actually wants to bring rescue to those who are oppressed. Now, This has always just brought up another question for me. It's sort of like the first question. God, that's great you care that you're offended by all of this abuse, but God, what's your plan for bringing rescue to people like Joy T and Alina and Kumar? How's it going to work, God? Well, once again, the answer from Scripture is pretty startling because it turns out we're the plan. We're God's plan A, and God doesn't have a plan B. We're it. And so it, it's all over Scripture. Consider a verse like Micah 6 8, where God says, He has told you, O man, O woman, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, 
but to do justice, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Or Isaiah chapter 1. Pick any chapter in Isaiah for that matter. Isaiah 1.17 says, Seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. All through Scripture, it's not a marginal, ancillary issue in Scripture. It's central to the theme of Scripture that God's people are to seek justice. And for those of us who take the Bible seriously, there can be no doubt that God has given us the work of seeking justice in the world. But you know, honestly, if you're like me, when I consider 27 million slaves that are being held by people in places of power that are brutal, that are violent... um, I start to feel like, uh, God, are you sure? Me? I know, I'm not sure that's a good plan, God. Uh, I, I feel so powerless, just so overwhelmed by the, 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 the scale and, the, and the, 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 just the ugliness of it all. And, and, and so I just feel powerless. And it's in those moments, I remember, it's in those moments it's good to remember this one story from the Gospels. You remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000? Right, where, where, where Jesus is out preaching to the masses and he's been preaching for a long time and so the disciples see that the people are hungry and they come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, um, the people are getting really hungry and I don't know if you've ever been around 5,000 hungry men but it's probably an intimidating scene, okay? So they're trying to avert this, you know, this disaster and they say, Jesus, we have a plan. Why don't you send all the people to the villages around here and they can get themselves fed and then tomorrow they can come back and we can do the whole thing over again. Good idea, right? But what Jesus, you got to love about Jesus is uh, he never misses out on an opportunity to have some fun with his boys, right? So he says, oh, no, no, no. How about my plan? How about you feed them? Now, what you've got to love about the disciples also is that they're just so patient to explain to Jesus what he clearly doesn't understand about the situation, right? And they say, they, they look at the masses and they say, well, Jesus, you see, we would love to do that, but there are 5,000 hungry people out there and, you know, frankly, uh, we don't have, like, it would take a year and a half's worth of wages to feed these, all these people, and we just don't have that sort of cash on hand, Jesus, so back to you, Jesus, right? So it's pretty interesting. Here, it was pretty clear what Jesus said. Jesus said, feed them. But what did the disciples do? They looked at the massive need, and then they looked at their own paltry resources, and they concluded, <laughs> Surely he's mixed up. This can't have anything to do with us, right? Isn't that the same thing that we do, considering God's command for us to seek justice? We look at this massive need of 27 million slaves of of four and a half billion people in the world, and we just think, well, I'm just a carpenter, or I'm just a fill in the blank. What could this possibly have to do with me? But... Isn't it interesting what Jesus says? He says, well, what do you have? And then we know the story. What what they push forward is the little boy, right, who's got the sack lunch that his mom packed for him at the beginning of the day to go hear the Messiah, you know, this this rabbi teach. And, And it's five loaves and two fish. And this represents the corporate resources of all of the disciples to feed the massive need. Now, it's interesting because at this point, 
uh, the Apostle Andrew, who must have been the smart one of the bunch, he probably had like some graduate degree in public policy or something, states the, what everyone else is thinking. He says, uh, yeah, but uh, what is this amongst so many, right? I mean, this would probably be me because I went to college a long time ago and I actually took a math course. And you've got 5,000 hungry people out there and five loaves and two fish, this possibly couldn't work. In fact, there's just nothing for us to do but just sit in despair and just do nothing. That would be me. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, "Uh, will you give it to me? And in that moment, Jesus takes responsibility for the miracle and 5,000 people are fed. One of the greatest sources of inspiration and faith in my life today is when I get to go to our field offices and rub shoulders with our uh, operatives, with our investigators, with the people who are there in the field doing this amazing work. These are people who are just average folks who've taken their little lunches, offered them to God, and they are standing face-to-face, eye-to-eye, toe-to-toe with overwhelming and incomprehensible evil. And they are seeing God show up. And the world is changing. In fact, the world changed for Kumar. One fall afternoon uh, in our IJM Bangalore office, we had discovered that this brick kiln in the area uh, had held slaves. And so we documented the, the cases there. And we brought the evidence to the local magistrates. And we, with the magistrates, went back to this brick kiln with the police. And we actually began interviewing the slaves. And they began telling us their story. And so we began documenting it. And everyone was so excited that they were going to be freed, even those who'd been there for multiple generations. It was a marvelous day. And then the brick kiln owner, who was a powerful man in that community, showed up. And he showed up with a mob of people with sticks and clubs. And they began intimidating people and actually, you know, bruising people and hitting people. And so one by one, right before our eyes, everything that had just been said, all this testimony, they began recanting this testimony. Oh, no, 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 that's actually not true. We're, we're, we're here because we want to be. And so the case began falling apart right before our very eyes. There were dozens and dozens of slaves in this brick kiln. And so it just was unraveling before us, except... One little boy decided, enough is enough. Kumar stood up and said, what these people are saying is a lie. We are held here, and these are the conditions we're in, and this is what's happening. And as this one little boy, Kumar, stood up and told the truth, then all of the others, the adults, actually then came back and said, what he's saying is true. And the magistrate said, a child wouldn't lie like this. And so Kumar gained his freedom that day. Several years of his life were stolen away from him, but he re-entered school. He became like this, it made up for lost time. He became a, 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 just a champion in his community. In fact, he uh, started his own little enterprise with a newspaper and then came to work for IJM and worked right alongside those who actually were responsible for freeing him. Kumar today is free and living the life that God intended for him. Or Alina, when our IJM Manila's team found out about her case, we began working with local authorities to confront this high-ranking national uh, Philippine police officer. And it took four long, hard years, dangerous work, of, of advocating on behalf of Alina 
But after four years, and Alina had to testify as well right in front of her perpetrator, and after four years of hard work, the Philippine National Police uh, rendered their verdict and they dismissed this man for conduct unbecoming a police officer. It, was, it had never happened before. It was unprecedented. Alina, on the other hand, went on to be a star. She, she, uh, she actually finished college. She got a degree in broadcasting. She wanted, she's working with uh, an evangelist in her country in Manila. And she started her own nonprofit as well called STAR, Standing Together uh, Advocating Rights, which is a group of girls like Alina who've been through this kind of abuse. And what they do is they coach other girls on how to testify through this long, hard, arduous process in courtrooms where the girls are just scared and frightened. And so they coach them. And Alina says, I do this because I know their story, because it was my story. And I want them to come out successful like me. So Lena is living the life that God intended her to live. Or consider Joy T. Joy T is no longer being horrifically abused in that brothel day after day because we were able to send undercover investigators into that brothel and document what was happening to her. And a few days after that, we document or we took the police with us and we did an operation on that brothel and we rescued five Alina or Joy T and five other girls out of that brothel. We put Joy T into a Christian aftercare center where she almost immediately blossomed to Jesus' love. She received Jesus as her Savior and began this, this amazing transformation almost in fast uh, motion before our very eyes. In fact, she was so transformed that she came back to our, our office and said, Listen, I know where they're, ho- where they're holding more girls. I can take you to them. And so with little Alina leading the charge with uh, the IJM investigators and, the, and the, uh, the Indian police, she led us to another brothel where we were able to rescue 11 more girls out of a brothel, being led by little Joy T. One of the girls who was being rescued out of that brothel, her name was Kalindi. She was 11 years old, little Kalindi. And Kalindi, as she realized, wait a second, we're not being re-trafficked, we're actually being rescued. She said, stop the show as we were being loaded up into the bus. She said, stop, I know where there are more girls that are being held, but we've got to go there right now or we're going to lose our opportunity. And so with Joy T and Kalindi, we went to another brothel and what you're seeing is the results of their bravery, of 12 more or two dozen other girls being brought out of abject, oppression and abuse. These girls are rescued and are safe and are experiencing the love of God. They know what it means to be free. Praise the Lord. Now, uh, when I've thought about this story of the feeding of the 5,000, I'm going to finish play out. I bring it up because I, I, I want to make this point. You see those miracles that happened. That's hope. That's what God is about. But in the feeding of the 5,000, I'm going to bring it back here because do you ever wonder why did God choose to do it that way with the little boy's lunch? I've wondered this. I mean, if the people were hungry, why didn't Jesus just do the manna trick, right? Manna. Eat up, everybody. Now let's get back to the teaching, the good stuff. He could have done that. He chose to use this one little boy's lunch. Why? 
Well, I have a feeling he did it because he wanted to give this one little boy a very cool day, right? I mean, think about this. I mean, he, he goes home to his mom who packed his lunch. No, no trading, but she, he goes, Mom, guess what I did with my lunch today? I fed 5,000 people. Well, not me. I mean, Jesus did, but it was my lunch. So I ask you this question. Do you think that boy will ever be the same in his life again? Or forget Jesus, for that matter? Now, conversely, the boy could have taken his lunch, gone behind the rock, and eaten it, right? But think of the small day he would have had, what he would have missed out on. Now, remember, Jesus didn't ask the disciples what was needed to meet the massive need. He asked them what they had. And what they had was practically nothing. In the same way, Jesus doesn't ask us for what is needed to meet the massive need to bring bring injustice down so that justice can reign. He doesn't ask us to meet the need. He asks us, what's in your hand? What do you have? Certainly, we all have the equivalent of that little boy's lunch. Now, let me, uh, let me bring this to a conclusion here. Uh, what does this mean for us? For, for us here in, in Huntsville, in Rocket Town, USA? Well, let me give you some things that I think you can just begin to take steps to do for your own justice journey to begin. Uh, Just three simple things, because I believe God has something for us to do to get started, to know his heart more. First of all, I think it'd be important to to learn, to encounter God's heart. God's given you a mind. So I I brought some books with me. I apologize, because last night they like, almost took them all. We've got some in the back there uh, called Good News About Injustice. There's, there's another book called Just Courage. Go to our website. There's tons of stuff that you can learn about what is going on right now, what God is doing in the world. Learn what the issues are. Learn what God's word says. Uh, and there's some books in the back. I'll, uh, if you want one, um, see me afterwards that will help you get started in that. Number two, advocate. What do I mean by advocate? Well, we live in a country where your voice matters. In fact, it matters so much that last this year, we collected 70,000 signatures of voices of people just like you, delivered them to the Oval Office, and it got the attention of the president, who then had a meeting with Gary Haugen, because the, vo- the people spoke. I, it's powerful. It's an amazing thing, that system. When it works, it's amazing. And, and President Obama it, it spoke at the Global Clinton Initiatives as if he was an IJM employee. It was an amazing day. Your voice matters. In fact, we're trying this next year to get a piece of legislation passed called the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act, the TVPRA. Okay? Uh, and I would love for you to tell your senator, Senator Sessions, and then what's the other one? Shelby. Oh, it's up there. Great. Uh, wow, that's great. Uh, we care about ending slavery in the world, and we want the United States to be make it a priority as, our, uh, as a country, leading the way. So we've got these cards. In fact, I think they're in the back. David, you might, maybe we pass these around. If you sign this, put your information down on that, what we'll, and then leave it here today, what I will do, along with the ones that we collected last night, I'm going to send these to our headquarters in D.C., and next week we'll have an intern deliver them on your behalf to either Sessions or Shelby and tell them, hey, the people of Huntsville, they care about this issue. When you vote this year, 
Make sure it's a priority for you. That's a signature. That's one thing you can do. Advocate. Thirdly, and this is, the, this is, this is it. This is a tough one. Okay? Pray. And I don't just mean pray right now. I'm going to ask you for a commitment of prayer for 27 days. I've got some prayer cards in the back, and if you're interested, you can take, get these afterwards at the table over here. But to pray for us for 27 days, pray for these operations. This week, we were praying for an operation in Calcutta, India, and we sent out the emails to thousands and thousands of people that this was a very difficult and tricky operation. And then when we got to this brothel, the brothel was empty. There had been tip-offs. Do you see the necessity of prayer? Not only of the operations being successful, but of the protection of our own people. It's a dangerous work. So I want to encourage you, and I really challenge you, by the end of 27 days, you want to know what? Uh, not only will you affect real-time change in the field, but your heart will change. It'll be like the Grinch's heart that grew and grew and grew. Okay? Pray. Let me end with a question. And that question is this. Have you ever wondered, in a world where there's so much suffering and need, why God has given us so much? Let me think about it. We have so much. I have to maybe respond to that question with the story. When growing up as a kid, I grew up in Southern California. And whenever our relatives from the Midwest would come to visit us in Southern California, my favorite place to take them was the beach, right? And my favorite beach to take them uh, kind of a shock value, was Venice Beach. Anyone ever been to Venice Beach? Okay, so you know what I'm talking about here. You, you, event, when the moment you walk on to the, 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 bull of the, the boardwalk of Venice Beach, y- you realize we're not in Kansas anymore. It's, a, it's, a, it's in a wild place. And right there, front and center of, of Venice Beach, is this place called Muscle Beach, right? And Muscle Beach is this weightlifting area with all these amazingly gigantic weights and around it is fenced off you know to keep out weaklings like myself <clears throat> and I would take the, these these friends and, and family members from the Midwest and we would lean on the fence of Muscle Beach and we would watch these guys these weightlifters I mean they were huge you seen these guys I mean they're, they're like necks are like out to here and their chests are out to here and their legs they have to walk like you know they've just gotten off a horse they're huge and I would always just look at them and go Look at all that power and, and, and talent. But then one day I had this thought. I thought, yeah, but what's it all for? Right? It's all for posing. It's all for posing. And maybe the only time that all that muscle and power and talent is brought to bear is in the emergency in the kitchen where the jam jar is stuck, right? And so he walks over and he goes... Pops open the jam jar. Hey! My prayer for us this morning is that God would rescue us from all things petty and small. That he would rescue us from our lives being about opening up jam jars. That he would rescue us from the me and mine to be engaged in the mission that Jesus proclaimed 2,000 years ago that's going on right now. God has a journey of justice for you. And from my own experience, I can tell you it leads right to the very heart of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are so good. And yet there are people in the world who are suffering violence and oppression and abuse that it is very hard for them to believe 
that there is a good and loving God. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning you would break our hearts with the things that are breaking your heart, that you would give us a vision for your plan for the world, and that we are part of it, and that by our obedience, we would be agents of your kingdom, that the whole world would see you are just and righteous. To the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.